Welcome to the Wealth Inequality Initiative podcast, shedding light on wealth inequality through exceptional personalities from around the world. Today, Christoph Schmocker, CEO of the Julius Baer Foundation, meets Dennis Meissner. The CEO of the Lehman Foundation in Brazil reflects on the role of education in fighting the wealth gap and how a school curriculum can reconnect the different socioeconomic groups of a society. Hello, everybody. I'm Christoph Schmocker, CEO of the Julius Baer Foundation, and I'm happy to welcome Dennis Misen as my guest in our Wealth Inequality Initiative podcast series. Dennis is the CEO of the Fundação Lehmann in Brazil, established by Jorge and Susana Lehmann in 2002 to guarantee access to high-quality public education for Brazilians of all backgrounds and to support the development of leaders committed to the social transformation of Brazil. Dennis, a warm welcome. We've been meaning to meet for over 10 months. COVID uh, didn't help us to do that. And finally, we meet. Thanks for taking the time for this talk. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you so much, uh, Christopher, for having me here and uh, having the opportunity to discuss such an important topic. Dennis, I would like to congratulate you. As a foundation CEO, long years in the business, what you achieved is the ultimate goal. You could change a system, not only fund a project. So can you tell us briefly what did Fundação Lehmann change in Brazil? First, I think we, we always have a feeling that we are still a long way to go, okay. right? But I think we, uh, from the beginning, um, when we looked at the strategy in Brazil, we started to uh, think what could scale. We don't think Brazil will become a more developed and fair country unless every child's potential is guaranteed. And we think that public education, high quality public education for all is essential to do that. So this component of the for all uh, made us think about what would be systemic changes that we could support that would actually have a, a chance to lift the whole system up. And we looked at different uh, policy uh, possibilities and initiatives. We looked at the 25th most successful school systems around the world, and we found out that all of them, they started, they had a focus on what kids need to learn. So that's normally standards, right? We don't think standards are going to be a magical one that will change everything, but if you can have very clear, objective, uh, uh, um, aspirational standards for the kids that if they achieve, they are ready for life when they finish school, uh, we think this changes the conversation in the school system. So what we tried to do was to uh, generate uh, uh, awareness in Brazil of this and then gather the whole political uh, system uh, in Brazil, the different actors, and build a movement uh, to have national learning standards in Brazil and then support its implementation uh, for K-12 education. When you came out with this idea, did you have people who were opposed? So were, were maybe the private schools opposed to that kind of initiative because they feared to lose uh, advantages? Or what was the reaction at the very early stage when it was known that Fundação Lehmann wants to attack that topic? I think we, we used to compare uh, learning standards in Brazil. There is a colleague of us 
who used to say, this is uh, like in Harry Potter, Voldemort. You cannot say the word, right? If you say the word, it's, it's a big problem. And so there was a lot of opposition against uh, learning standards, but they didn't come from private schools. I think in general, the private sector ignored it for a very long time because they didn't think it was going to come or if it came, it wouldn't affect them. Then we can talk about what happened afterwards. But um, I think in the beginning, the biggest opposition was a an academic vision around education uh, that says, that believes that uh, teacher autonomy is the most important part of education. And at first, they feared that if there were standards, this would limit teachers' autonomy. And I think a point that a lot of the members of our coalition made was to say, we're not telling teachers how they're going to teach. We're just discussing what kids should learn, not how teachers are going to teach. So autonomy should be preserved. But if you don't know where you're going, if you don't have a clear what, that's not even autonomy. That's just leaving the teachers completely abandoned. And I think this was the point um, uh, that was important to make in the process. And although teachers unions and, and mostly not even the unions, but the you know academics in education and pedagogy were very uh, much against it for a very long time, uh, teachers themselves, once they started to understand that standards could be something that would help their job, uh, they became in favor uh, of the standard. But it took a very long time. I'm telling you here, uh, you know, like it, it, it was a there was a lot of opposition in the beginning, and the other kind of opposition was just the political climate. Brazil is a very polarized society. This was also very complicated. That we could have a, a policy discussion in education that was seen as a state matter and not as a political matter. And, and I think this was uh, the hardest uh, uh, job uh, uh, in, in, the, in the kind of the opposition. Of course, there were a lot of technical difficulties, but the political difficulties were these, how to relate to teacher autonomy and show this was not a threat to teachers' autonomy, and on the other hand, how to navigate this very polarized political landscape um, and be able to have a, a, an effective document uh, uh, in the end. At Julius Baer Foundation, we are focusing on wealth inequality, as you know, and especially on solutions to close the wealth and the opportunities gap between different socioeconomic groups. Brazil, as I said, is one of the most unequal countries did the different uh, socioeconomic groups um, welcomed your initiative? How about the children themselves? How about their parents? Were there any moment where father, mother, 16 years old child being in such a system had a voice? So it's an interesting question. I think in the, in the beginning, um, we, we started this, and first, it's not a Lemon Foundation initiative, right? We, we were kind of the facilitators of a movement. We were building this movement. We were facilitating the conversation. We started this in 2013, and we focused on the different political stakeholders and technical stakeholders. So we brought together a group of um, people from the National Ministry of Education, from state secretaries of education, municipal secretaries of education, academics, uh, people in Congress on the Education Commission, uh, Commission in Congress, uh, people from civil society groups. Uh, and we sat together and we started discussing why we don't have that, right? And then this group came, they were very divided. They ended up agreeing that, okay, we are going to fight a lot on what the standards should look like, but we are going to agree that we need standards. 
and we're going to work for that because of the uh, uh, you know inequality reduction uh, potential. And so, so sorry. So the first goal was: Do we want to define standards? Yes. That was phase one. Phase objective. one, and <laughs> it was super important to be a phased pro uh, process because otherwise, people, you know, it's it's interesting. Once you bring cer a certain level of of concreteness to a policy discussion, you reduce the level of 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 uh, tension because a lot of the debate and the threat and the the tension comes from. You don't know what it is, so you're against it, right? So once you give some level of co of concreteness, people look and say, "Ah, okay, I can deal with that." But if you go too too deep, then people start arguing again because no, no, no. In math, I, you know, should should it cover only math and Portuguese, or should it cover every subject matter? Is it mandatory or is it voluntary? Is it uh, then you have a lot of tension? So so we 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 tried to build this step by step, and the first was, do we need? Standards and should the education system revolve around standards because that's the other thing and standards for us put the child in the center. So because the the education system is is organized around the adults in the room, the children, especially the most vulnerable children, they don't have representation in the debate. But we think once you put what kids need to learn in the center of the debate, you are putting children in the center of the debate. And and that was important. And then after you, there was this level of political, more high level consensus. Uh, the Congress approved the law determining to have standards in 2014. In 2015, uh, a tripart uh, uh, a committee from the federal, state, and municipal governments started working on the first draft. It was really bad, but it was a first draft. It came out, and then we became kind of uh, um, we were supporting and critical. Uh, uh, you know, looking critically at, at what was coming out and pushing for the uh, public debate around the sense. So we, we, we helped put together a platform where teachers could participate. 300,000 teachers actually wrote uh, suggestions on how to improve. That's 15% of all the teachers in the country. This was critical. We saw this as an element we learned from Australia, from the UK, uh, from Chile, from the US, where you didn't have teacher participation. There was a lot of resistance. And pa parents, they look for teachers' uh, perspective on educational things. And, and I think that grew. And in the last phases, it took four years to get the standards approved and then two years to prepare implementation. And they started being implemented in 2020. And uh, I think parents only was were more involved when it became public, right? In, in more like towards uh, 2018, when this is being debated, the newspapers are covering. So there was not a formal process to bring uh, parents' participation, but there was a lot of processes to bring teachers, school principals, and we were doing a lot, lots of polling also to bring the information to the policymakers and say, this is what people are saying, and this should be taken into account. You're absolutely right. Foundations don't do things for recognition. Nevertheless, I, I rather thought more a a kind of a, a buy-in. You mentioned now the buy-ins of principals and the buy-ins of teacher. The, the ultimate buy-in is the learners, you know, and, and maybe it's too early. You said you are two years in the game now in the implementation, but, but think about it. I would be interested, you know, not a, a 10 years old child, but if you go to grade 11, 12, they have an opinion and they no, would say, look, a great uh, idea. this is maybe something I would like to check and also to understand why that happened. 
And I want to come on that why that happened. Did you, <laughs> I would say, use the opportunity when you did this new curriculum also to include social cohesion topics? W was it mainly what is there? So the maths, the language, the geography, the history, or did you have an opportunity to also put uh, actual challenges in this new curriculum? Was there a, a possibility to influence content or was that on purpose left out? So we didn't write content, right? The, the foundation was always very clear that our job was to facilitate the conversation. Uh, but we were supporting these uh, critical reviews. The, there was a movement for national learning standards and the movement would publish uh, what would, after each draft, Uh, kind of critical reviews of the content based on experts from Brazil and outside uh, Brazil to look at exactly that. Like what, what is a, you have to push for, you know, 21st century and for, you know, the, the, the stars in terms of what you want, but you have to make it uh, be in dialogue with the realities of the classroom. Otherwise you write a document that teachers don't recognize and then they don't uh, teach it. And, And I think one of the biggest in, uh, uh, innovations, uh, and, and the movement pushed a lot for that, was the, this what we call 10 general competencies that are kind of all over. So, so they, they are above the subject matters. And they are discussing a lot of the issues that you were talking about, both in terms of the competencies that students need to have, in terms of being a, a global citizen, in terms of being uh, entrepreneurial, and, but also this is discussing uh, um, uh, critical thinking and collective action and, and, and things like that. And this draws down through the curriculum, through the standards, which is super interesting. It's not like a a mission statement and then you ignore it on, on. So there are a lot of these issues around technology, around climate change, around uh, the being ready for the century that we're living in. E and even inside the subject matters, there are a lot of different ways. So science is much more hands-on, uh, science more inquisitive, more, you know, uh, 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 math, you have like uh, statistics have, a, you know, understanding data being able to understand data and assess data uh, has a much greater uh, way than it used to have uh, um, uh, in Brazil. So there are a lot of things. And the interesting part is there is a revision mechanism. So every five years, uh, the, the standards will be reviewed and hopefully uh, the, the innovations that are coming f uh, throughout the system because the standards cover 60, 70% of what the schools are teaching. The, the rest, that is, there is a lot of, diversity out there that this can come and filter through and they'd say, okay, maybe, you know, coding, uh, which was not included, for example, but there are several municipalities doing, maybe it can come to the next level. But this that you're asking, the more principled uh, issues and also these general competencies of the 21st century, these were uh, uh, included. Uh, and this is what one of the things that generate the most demand from private schools that you asked. Like at first they were not looking at it. Then it became mandatory even to them. So it's for every school. And then they were running and saying, okay, this is a fantastic opportunity. We want to do this, and uh, but we need to, to improve. It's the first time private schools felt like we're not ready, actually. We're seeing this and, and we need to improve. And a lot of the uh, what they are looking at is these general competencies, this more the modern, more contemporary 
uh, part of the standards. So you said uh, several times that the role of Fundación Lehmann was rather a facilitator than uh, the owner. What's the role now? Is it uh, so this thing is uh, being implemented or on the way to being implemented? Are you now a kind of a, a watchdog or a supervisor, a coach? Uh, so what is your role today? So first, we, we developed a, an implementation roadmap uh, that was agreed by all the relevant stakeholders. And, and we support this implementation roadmap. And the roadmap started with alignment of the state and local standards to the national standards. So we supported that. And then there was preparing the teachers to teach the new standards. So we supported that and uh, alignment of the textbooks, so we supported that. And now we are focused on alignment of the assessments. Brazil has a national assessment system that is very robust, and uh, and it's super important for the schools. And, and in education, there is this saying that in a fight between standards and assessment, assessment always wins. Right, the teachers are the, the the administrators. They care about the grades, the te the the kids, the parents. So unless you align the assessments, then you know you can be pushing for a different direction. So this is the last phase of of this macro implementation. The micro level, and and this connects to the kind of the newer thing the foundation is doing, and what we started once the standards were on the way, is. Once you know where you want to 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 be, and the standards are this, like you know, a, a light, right? Uh, you need to support the school systems to get there, right? A, a lot of times, people outside education they think, no, it's all about you know punishment, or if you can fire the ten percent worst teachers, if you can, or if you can give bonuses, then teachers will do everything. But the matter of fact is that a lot of the school systems simply they lack support to do it. They, they don't have the resources to, to train the teachers. They don't know how to do it. So uh, we, are, we, we are building in Brazil what uh, the Americans call this instruction infrastructure. So this idea that, you know, in order to do good instruction, you need an infrastructure of support. And I think we have been investing in a lot of uh, uh, organizations um, outside the foundation that we, we incubated, we support, whatever. Uh, 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 we spun off part of the foundation to do this. It's to be able to support the school districts at scale uh, to be able to ensure great learning. And today we are working directly uh, with 2.5 million students in these programs uh, at the foundation where we are supporting We are long-term partners of the school districts to ensure great learning in the classroom. So the standards came. They are now coming down to the schools. Okay, what do we need to do to support that? So this means 18% of the kids in elementary school in Brazil and 12% of the kids in, in middle school, and it's a large country. So to be able to build this operation um, – was super important. And so I think this is the vision for the next uh, 10 years, let's say, is we are able through this uh, combination of a ambitious policy with buy-in and a, a capacity, a delivery ecosystem of great learning happening that we can put these two together 
at the right scale, and we can start seeing things like, for example, uh, we want to eradicate illiteracy in Brazil in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And still today, 50% of kids in school at the right age are illiterate, right? 50%. That's the biggest inequality of all. So now we can look at this and say, okay, that's doable. We, you know, the, the standards changed it, show how to do it. The textbooks are organized, the assessments are organized, and there is this capacity to reach schools at scale. And I think this, this is going to be the turning point. And that's why I'm very excited about the years to come. I'm, I'm, it's, it's good to hear people telling you that what you did was important and, and, and we feel, of course, great about this, but the, the, the mindset is always like, what's missing? And I think it's missing this, what we want to see is this really looking at the, at the, at the you know, kids in the end of school and saying, okay, they are, it's, it's happening, right? The education is happening, inequality will be reduced. And, and we, we, we think this is, this is doable. Okay. That, that's, that's what we're looking at. Let me go to the, the second last question. Uh, what are the three most important recommendations you would give to a foundation to drive or facilitate? You mentioned the word facilitator, such a process. I think, I think first, you need a strategy, right? You need to be, we used to say, we still say that you have to be one step, one or two steps ahead of where you, you have to be able to see where you're going in re relatively long term and be ready to do the, the first kind of um, steps. Uh, this is kind of a pre uh, common to the three more concrete things, but I, I wouldn't underestimate the, the need for a strategy. Uh, but once you do it, I think the number one is building trust, right? If you want to push for change, you have to build trust. I think many foundations are endowed by powerful people and they think they can have shortcuts, right? I'm powerful. I can call the president and I'll tell him to do this and he will enact it in 15 days. We'll have this great policy. Yeah, it's not going to work for sure. That's the only thing you know. You might get the policy. It's just not going to work. So I think you have, we, we have this principle of no shortcuts. And, and I think the number one thing, build trust. Identify the key stakeholders, build trust amongst them. And, and you, you need, if you're not a neutral player, you need to find a neutral player. You need someone who can facilitate these hard conversations. This is uh, build trust. The second uh, thing is learn from everywhere else where they already tackled the problem. It could be because they tackle, it's another country and they tackled the same problem you're tackling, or it could be in your country, another problem that was already tackled. So you have to be learning. And I think this is what helps you to be one or two steps ahead. If you're spending time learning, you're doing this and you're looking at, at this kind of what's the next step and how they did it. Can I bring, can I, can I, uh, can I learn from others and bring this here? I think this constant learning is super important. And the last part is consistency. You know, you have to do it every day and you have to keep on track and you have to, to continue. You cannot give up uh, because in we, <laughs> we used to joke that there was a, a, we were by, through the most part of this, we were a coalition of 60 uh, people. Uh, some more organizations, but, but yeah, and 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 I, I would say that there was always this sixty-first uh, member, 
of the coalition, uh, which was the skepticism. And he was very vocal. Uh, you know, skepticism was always with us. There was always like, you know, at least a third of the room who were like, ah, oh, I don't think this is going to work. Yeah, this is definitely not going to work. This government is awful. And then the next government is even worse. And, you know, of course, teachers are going to be against it. And of course, we're going to give up. And of course, Congress will never approve it. And, and this is so strong in our sector. I think, you know, people are always trying to show you how you're not thinking about how this is going to go wrong, right? And how, you know, the problem is much deeper and you're not seeing it. And so I think unless you have this drive, consistency, this, you know, <laughs> faith, call it whatever you want, but you, you have to keep going. You have mm -hmm. to keep going uh, because there are many reasons to give up, right? But I think if you can build trust, I think if you can keep learning and figuring out what's going to be the next, and then if you can keep going, you have to be flexible because there will be bumps in the road for sure, but you have to keep going. And I think if you do this, uh, there is a, a greater likelihood of success. Dennis, I come to my last question. If you could have a chat with anyone in the world, obviously alive, on wealth inequality, who would that be? Is it to ask about what to do or to convince the person to do something? Whatever. You can put a two hours lunch and we would organize it. That That's a, a kind of hypothesis, huh? so it's yeah. not a promise. But who would be the person you would like to really know what he or she thinks about wealth inequality? I think one, one option here is someone like, you know, Jeff Bezos, right? And say, you know, you, you have some reason now, some of the richest people in the world are simply not very engaged, I think, or not enough engaged about this issue of wealth inequality. We, we, we used to have, um, you know, Bill Gates and others who were very vocal about, you know, philanthropy. And, and now we have Elon Musk and we have Jeff Bezos and, you know, others who are not particularly engaged in philanthropic uh, causes. They are looking at space uh, exploration and, and other priorities. And so I think this would be an interesting conversation also because of the global reach and uh, what they built. So um, thank you very much, Dennis, for this open exchange. It's always interesting. I learn from you and we, we learn together because we have new thoughts and ideas. So uh, really a warm thank you and we wish you all the best. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity for, to reflect. Thanks for the generosity. And congratulations for, for putting uh, wealth inequality in the center of what you're doing. Um, there is no more important uh, aspect or issue to be uh, discussed and tackled uh, over the next few years. And thanks for the flowers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Wealth Inequality Initiative podcast. What did you think of this episode? please go to www.wealth-inequality.net to share your thoughts and comments and for more insights into the pressing issue of wealth inequality.